the Old Testament and first reading this morning comes from Genesis chapter 22 verses 15 to 18 and that can be found on page 15 of the Bibles you were given this morning. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. And the second reading from Hebrews this morning can be found on page 848. Starting at chapter 5, verse 11, and going through to chapter 6, verse 20. So page 848. We have much to say about this, but it's hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, to be brought back to repentance, because to their loss they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging, of his, unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'd encourage you to uh, keep that passage open in front of you from Hebrews. It is indeed the word of God. Uh, we've been, we have much to be thankful for in having that word. Uh, though sometimes it's hard to hear, isn't it? It's hard when you kind of go, I'm not talking about sound issues at this point. I'm talking about, you know, you hear Abraham, you hear Melchizedek. They're not names that particularly feel close to my week. Uh, you're feeling sick, you're feeling tired. I know many are away. Uh, we really need God's help that we might understand and be encouraged this morning. So let's pray. Lord and Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we give you great thanks that you have allowed us to know you. And we thank you that you keep speaking to us as your spirit applies your word to our hearts and minds. We pray this morning that you would speak clearly to us. Uh, Help us uh, when we're tired and when we're sick uh, to concentrate hard on what you've to say to us Uh, and help us listen with soft hearts that actually want to change. Uh, Expose to us the areas we need to that we might become more and more like Christ in this world. Uh, We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being completely immature, 10 being kind of you know, geriatrically style mature, uh, how mature would you describe our church? Now, I'm sorry if you're with us here uh, for the first time. Uh, you haven't got very much to work off, but, but please, do, do your best. How mature would you describe this church as? Uh, not physically, I mean spiritually. Don't tell us how old the average age is. How, how mature are we? Baby-like spiritually? Are we you know, toddlers, teens, you know, mid-thirties and mortgaged? Uh, yeah, are we comfortably retired? Uh, Matt Galvin is thirty-two. Uh, he lives with his parents in Chester Hill after having moved in and out four times. Uh, for some reason, he thought this week it would be a great idea to get a shot of himself in the paper, uh, lounging in front of his computer games, and he followed it with this quote. Uh, I'm still young at heart. I'm an 18-year-old in a 32-year-old's body. I doubt how he, if he realised how this kind of image would position him with uh, members of the opposite sex. Um, just can't help thinking the ladies aren't lining up to get an 18-year-old in the body of a 32-year-old. Um, but in the article, the demographer uh, Bernard Salt was quoted, we're breeding a generation of mummies boys. Uh, I think that's one of the greatest complaints many young women have. Uh, The article was about a a trend that men won't leave home. Uh, Looking a little closer at the stats over the the past two decades, percentages are up actually on both men and women, not just men, staying with their parents until their mid-30s. Now, create a conversation, I I caught a bit of it on the air, about what was lost and what was gained about people staying longer with their parents. So callers rang in and and had stories about the benefits of moving out young to, to gain responsibility. But... That was then countered by those stories of people talking about kind of university life and being flatmates eking out existences of you know, massive irresponsibility. Uh, you know, one mother rang in uh, delighting in the fact that her 30-odd-year-old son was at home and he did absolutely nothing. She did everything for him. Wasn't that great? Um, but others rang up to talk about how they had chosen to stay at home because they wanted to care and support their parents. 
you know, after listening to caller after caller, it's was, it was fairly obvious uh, maturity is not automatic. You know, just because you get on in years doesn't mean automatically you take on the responsibility that reflects that stage. Uh, as Matt Galvin bragged, I'm an 18-year-old in a 32-year-old's body. So maturity in life is not automatic, uh, nor is it automatic in the Christian life. You know, Christian maturity is not just equal to the number of years since you accepted Christ. It's connected to training, it's connected to experience. You know, back to that question I asked, how mature would you describe our church to be? For yourself, how seriously do you take Christian growth? So yes, you may be a Christian if you're a Christian here today, but it doesn't mean you're still growing. It doesn't mean you're still maturing. God's word is clear to us today. Spiritual maturity is not automatic, but it is essential. So Hebrews 5.11. We've much to say about this, but it is hard to explain because you are slow to learn. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truth of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Um, anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So the passage itself is a little aside from uh, the argument he's been making. It's, I suppose, a big brackets around the reading we had this morning. So uh, in 5.10, he was talking about this new priesthood in Jesus, the order of Melchizedek. Uh, and he returns to that in 6.20, and next week in chapter 7, we're going to hear more and more about this Melchizedek chap. Uh, But before he can delve deeply into these kind of truths, he wants to take an aside and say, are you really listening? He wants to make sure they're paying attention, because in 5.11, he makes clear they've got a hearing problem. They are slow to learn. Uh, Quite literally, the expression there is, they are sluggish. Uh, In Proverbs, uh, the sluggard is lampooned for his laziness. Uh, One of my favourite Proverbs, Proverbs 19.24, the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and he will not even bring it back to his mouth. That is, he is so lazy he can't be bothered doing what's good for him, even a simple thing like lifting his food to his mouth. Uh, Hebrews is laying that challenge to, to to the readers, that you've been sluggish. Now, these people have been Christians long enough that by now they should be out there teaching others. Instead, they are are still adults living on bottled milk. You know, they're they're 32-year-olds who who earn big money but still live with mum and dad and don't pay board. You know, they're eating big but they don't do any chores. He wants to tell them of, of the deep wonders of Christ but he's worried that they are too sluggish and too lazy to actually pay attention. So their slowness to learn is because is they actually don't want to know more. It's not an intellectual issue. It's, they're actually content in their state of you know, spiritual arrested development. They don't want to act on what the truth says because it will put them in uncomfortable places. They'd rather be you know, spiritual Peter Pans. They aren't showing the signs of maturity in verse 14. So the spiritually mature there are in a position that they can keep learning about God because they've got such a deep understanding that they can actually live a godly life. So they have trained themselves to distinguish and discern good from evil. So who are the mature? The mature are those who they've read God's word over and over and then they've gone and actually 
change their thinking and change their life because of it. So they've been confronted with ethical dilemmas, you know, euthanasia to land rights to, to preserving friendship to, to IVF to good business practice to, to how to speak the truth lovingly uh, to, to suffering to hospitality and welcoming strangers to deciding where they're going to live and you know all those kind of basic life ethical dilemmas they've, they've looked at them and kept going back to the word that they can distinguish good from evil what the right thing to do is that's the mature. They've worked hard at knowing God and they've applied that to, to just the ethics of basic life. And the more they've done it, the more natural it becomes. Uh, so the first time you do give uh, a child solid food, uh, you know, it, it takes an hour to get through the kind of pureed fruit uh, because you know, they just don't know what they're doing. But over time, as they learn, as you practice, it gets faster and faster until you can feed yourself. It's the same spiritually. The process picks up as you keep going back between the word and thinking about how it shapes your life and what you should do and you go back and forth and back and forth. It gets faster the more mature you become. See, is our church mature? Even if you've only been here a little while, uh, there'll be signs. Is the general character of our church a, a hunger to know God more deeply? You know, there's always going to be spiritual variety. There's always new people coming. And so there, there is. But, but do you see individuals' uh, spiritual maturity match the number of years they've known Christ? Is there a connection point? Do you see people taking the initiative to go and serve other people, to go and teach other people, and not wait to be actually told and instructed, you know, this would be a really good thing to do, you know, rather than being spoon-fed about God like infants? Do we see people making kind of wise decisions that show they love what God loves? I've heard it said that morning congregations are where people go to retire. You know, people who once you know, led a youth group, uh, who went on beach missions, who went through you know, university groups, lapping up every scrap of information they could about God, uh, they then hit a point in kind of life and all the circumstances of life where they just stopped striving to grow spiritually and just sluggishly wait to be fed. It's a pilgrim's regression rather than progress. And wouldn't it be awful if that was us? I've met many business giants who are spiritual pygmies. Is that us? Maturity is not automatic. Sluggishness wants to, to have us, if you can imagine it, sluggishness, you know, it's, of course, subtly done because laziness doesn't do quick movements. But, you know, we've got to take our Christian growth seriously. Because if we don't, the risk is that we fall completely from Christ. Uh, 6 verse 4. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, that if they fall away, it is impossible to be brought back to repentance. Because to their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. See, that long-term potential of immaturity, of being sluggish about God's word, is the risk of falling. 
So in those opening verses of 6, he, he wants to go into depth about the, the major themes of the letters. He, he mentions six areas and he pairs them. You know, So there's the importance of faith, not works. There's um, stuff about, I suppose, uh, right religious and cultic practice. There's you know, the end times and eschatology, judgment to come. They're big themes of the letter. He wants to be able to talk freely about them, not just go over the basic foundations, but because you can't relay those foundations of Christian life. How you started is how you're going to keep going. But there's no point him speaking of those things if people aren't serious about their their growth and if they aren't worried about the cost of degeneration spiritually. And so he speaks of the impossible, the impossibility of people who've sampled the goodness of God to to come back if they turn away. Now, of course, some of these these things for, for some of us will raise theological questions. My, my fear is we read this passage and that actually overshadows our understanding of it, the questions we come with rather than what he's trying to tell us. You know, one of the deep questions about um, you know, the mechanics of salvation, how it all works, is whether you know, we chose God or God chose us. Uh, there's an illustration uh, that I've heard used uh, that tries to understand the biblical material by saying, you know, Christian experience, you're outside a door and the door says, you know, choose God. And when you go through, you turn around and you discover it said, oh, God really chose you. Uh, Now, I suspect that illustration actually explains more our experience than it does what the Bible has to say. The Bible is clear that sin is so ingrained within us that none of us want to choose God, even if we could. Salvation is a divine act of CPR on, on souls so dead they've started to rot. It isn't something we start and initiate. But God does it through his creation, not against it. So he does it through our wills, through our circumstances. God chooses his people and and no one can steal them from him, not even the Satan. Uh, Looking back again then at Hebrews 6 and what we just read, you can start to see what might be a bit problematic. Now, the writer is not giving a fake warning. It doesn't do justice to this to say that uh, it's like the annoyed parent who's driving along and gives that hollow threat that if kids don't behave, I'm pulling up on this highway and out you get. And I'm, get, you know, it's not a hollow threat like that. The risk is real. It may be, but that that these people aren't simply aren't the, the kind of people who are genuinely converted. That's how some people take it. That they've just hung around with Christians. It's possible. Though that language we just read in verse 4 to 6 of tasting in the goodness of, of being enlightened is normally used in the Bible to talk about genuine personal experience of God. Hebrews is saying that those who've experienced salvation, if they actively turn their back on Christ, it's not talking about people who are Christians and just struggling to follow Jesus but you know, finding it hard. No, no. But if they, if they actively turn away from Christ and despise him, they have no hope left. You can't mock Jesus and get away with it. There's no coming back from that kind of complete defiance. Now, whether, whether it's because you don't want to or whether God won't allow it, the end result is the same. A powerful metaphor in verse 7 and 8. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and in danger of being cursed, and in the end it will be burned. See, can Christians fall away is the wrong question. 
You know, if we're asking it just to get our minds intellectually satisfied, it's a rebuke. Um, We mustn't let the neatness of our theological package destroy the power of God's word. Now, just like our our minds can't encompass fully um, God who is three and at the same time one, uh, it's hard to hold together the truth of this warning with the comfort that God preserves his people. But if you're asking those questions because of experience, well, the reality is you never need both those bits of information at the same time. You know, if you're sinning and you don't care about it, you don't need the comfort or you don't need to hear about the comfort that God will hold on to you forever. You need a stern warning. But if you're struggling sincerely to follow, you know, but without assurance, you don't need the kick in the head of this kind of passage. You don't need both those bits of information at the same time in experience. Of course, if we're asking it for emotional reasons... Yeah, and I, um, I have those old youth leaders. You know, I have uh, fellow mission workers. I have uh, a friend who did theological college with me who all since deny Jesus. You know, if we ask for, for those people, uh, you know, I suppose when we ask it, we don't really care whether they're a Christian first time around or not. We just want to see them back. But the warning's there. Don't fall away. Go on to maturity and go on to maturity with confidence. So the aside is written with, with a sense of confidence of better things. Verse 9, even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are confident of better things in your case, things that accompany salvation. See, he expects they're not going to fall away. He is confident of better things, in part because he's observed their lives. He's seen their actions And he's hoping they're going to recapture the enthusiasm that they they used to have instead of sluggishness. So verse 10, God is not unjust. He won't forget your work and the love that you have shown him as you helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end in order to make your hope sure. We don't want you to become lazy. It's the same word there as sluggish but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what's been promised. So he's confident partly because he's seen their lives, but he goes on to say, I've got a greater confidence, an objective confidence, God himself. So God had given his word to Abraham and he kept it. He's faithful. God makes promises and there's that beautiful uh, part of verse 18 there, God can't lie. God's, God's word, God's character, and especially Uh, God's son and his work give us objective confidence so there at the end of that chapter verse 19 and 20 Jesus is is the priest for us in the presence of God he is the anchor for our souls that is he's our sure hope that means we won't fall and I I can think of people in uh, in our church and I can be confident of better things it's so easy to dwell on uh, as Christians to dwell on our failings uh, you know, to, to bring out the stick in the areas where we desire to be more loving and godly and just kind of each week beat ourselves around a little. Uh, but it's actually an insult to uh, the work of the Spirit if we fail to recognise what he is doing in the lives of Christians and the service that they are doing. You know, it's why I suppose we're doing these year of living generously interviews, uh, you know, getting Pete up and getting others up so that we can actually have confidence, to to be encouraged, to help us see God is doing good works amongst us. Uh, I um, was passed on the other day that uh, uh, someone who received meals from uh, others in the church had told their parents 
uh, how they were right for three weeks' worth of, uh, of food. Uh, their parents aren't Christians, uh, but they said, oh, maybe I should join a church. Uh, you know, healthy, observable signs of love in, in our community, they're, they're to give us confidence. But our greater confidence is never going to be in each other, is it? It's always going to be in God himself. You know, the subjective of my works has been unreliable, isn't it? You know, if you're like me, I have days when I feel, yeah, okay, that I was a good, faithful servant of God. I, I can go to bed content. But then I have lots of other days where I'm just embarrassed, days I would hope God would forget. And so we have a greater confidence in the God who can't lie, verse 18. It's not up and down with him. We don't trust ourselves, we flee to Christ. We, it's his eternal priestly work that guarantees our future. I have a book on my shelf called uh, uh, Among God's Giants. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote it about the Puritans. Uh, he draws the title from uh, travelling through a 33-mile road in northern California. Uh, it's a road that, that winds through a, a redwood park. Redwoods there, these Californian redwoods, some are over 100 metres tall uh, and almost 20 metres in diameter. Massive. Uh, and he likens the, uh, the English Puritans to those trees because of their spiritual maturity. Uh, he says this in his intro, uh, As redwoods attract the eye because they overtop other trees, so the mature holiness and seasoned fortitude of the great Puritans shine before us as a kind of beacon light, especially for the church in the West where, where affluence for the past generation seems to have been making dwarfs and deadheads of us all. It's a book I'd encourage you to read. It's a great book. Uh, but it set my mind to thinking, wouldn't it be a great thing that centuries from now other Christians could look to our lives and our maturity for their encouragement? Are we serious about Christian maturity? Or are you content with spiritual arrested development? Yeah, if we're serious, uh, strangely it'll mean we become more and more dependent rather than independent. That is, we're going to become more dependent on God, on trusting his word, on fleeing to find shelter with Christ. It'll mean we'll take the time to serve and to love and to imitate the faith of others. It'll mean we'll be serious about studying the word of God, you know, with the same kind of attention that we pay to, to career development and, and honing our hobbies. You know, maybe, maybe it'd be good for us all to, to do the equivalent of an MBA in plumbing the depths of God's word. You know, on a scale of 1 to 10, just how mature are we? One last clue to answer that question is discomfort. See, maturity, always re- maturity requires change. Change is always uncomfortable. Uh, someone told me this week he's at a church in, uh, in serious decline, um, like close to closing the doors kind of decline. Uh, they're on death's door. Uh, and he told me how it actually all started 20 years ago in the period that everyone who's at church remembers as their happiest time. It's the most fondly remembered period of the church because it was the most comfortable time. Uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of change. Everyone was, was still my friends and we're all together and wasn't it just a lovely time 20 years ago? But it happened to be as well the same time they got sluggish about growing. It takes a long time for that to be worked out. Uh, he, he told me previously uh, been in a church that was always growing and his experience of church there was always uncomfortable <laughs> because it was always changing. You never knew what was going to happen. You'd be in a nice group and then it'd be shut down. A new group would start or a new congregation. 
Yeah, and I think what's true on the church scale is true on the individual scale. Discomfort because of that change is a sign we're maturing. It's not automatic, but it is essential. As Hebrews 6 1 says, Let, let's go on to maturity. Why don't we pray and ask for God's help in that? Lord and Father, we, we thank you for the solid work of Christ, our priest, our, our hope, the one we flee to, the anchor of our souls. We thank you that you make promises and are faithful, you do not lie. And we thank you for the way that you're at work in and amongst us. And we pray that you would help us to not be sluggish, to be passionate about growing onto maturity. Father, may we not be content with how we are spiritually, but may we grow uh, and long to, to know you more deeply and by practice be able to discern what is good and evil and live that out in our lives to your glory. Amen.